0: It is great to have this time together. Thank you for joining me. We'll begin with prayer, then together we'll open the Bible. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to gather around your throne and listen to the sound of your voice as expressed through your word. Guide this time. Be honored. Allow us to see what we should see. Banish every distraction that would prevent us from catching hold of some array of light that shines from heaven's throne. Bless us now, we ask you, we thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. He claimed it was a joke that got out of hand. But many people didn't find it very funny. The man ran a pub in a city halfway between Gloucester and Birmingham in the west of England. Now, you know that pubs in England are a little different A little different to a typical bar in the United States or a pub somewhere like New Zealand or Australia. Historically, they've tended to be gathering places, community centers. I don't mean to overstretch it. A place where you can get a meal, play darts, not typically just a place for getting drunk. But nevertheless, this was a pub. By the way, in England... We were filming a program on John Bunyan in the city of Bedford, where Bunyan was from, and we noticed there a pub, a large pub, rather a nice-looking building. The pub was called The Pilgrim's Progress. I don't think that's what John Bunyan had in mind. I don't think there were many pilgrims in there, and I can assure you, few of them were making any progress. But back to our friend, the one who said it was a joke. At his pub in the west of England for 20 years, he had told stories of his time in the military. He even claimed that he had seen wartime action and that he'd won a medal for gallantry, a medal for bravery, a medal for devotion to duty under fire. He said that he served in a parachute regiment, and in Great Britain, parachute regiments are taken pretty seriously. That's no joke. That's, that's quite the achievement, quite the honor. But when he was confronted by two actual veterans... Who had a list of all of the winners of the medal in question, the one our friend claimed to have won, this man was forced to admit that he had lied. He'd never served in the military, and he hadn't ever been decorated with a prestigious medal. In fact, this is true, when confronted with the evidence that he had lied, he literally ran. People who were there said it was the strangest thing. He ran out of the pub and just ran off. Presumably, he came back later, but he was unable to handle the shame of the situation and he ran. And yes, he should have felt shame. What he had committed was something which in the United States is referred to as stolen valor. That's when someone who didn't serve in the military claims that they did. He was a military imposter. Stolen Valor can refer to someone who embellished their military records, and many people have done so. Like the man in Alaska who was wearing the uniform of the Green Berets, the U.S. Army Special Forces. Not just the uniform, he was wearing medals on the uniform. Medals? He did not win. When actual former servicemen found out about this imposter, they were not happy, and they put a rather public end to his very dubious deception. Now, in the Bible, we have a case of something like stolen valor. It's a famous story. It's one found in Matthew chapter 22, in which not just one person, but the truth is many, many people claim to be wearing a uniform when in actual fact they were not doing so. The story is the story of one man who arrives in a place where he ought to be wearing something He claims he has the right to be there, but he's not wearing something he should have been wearing. So let's look at the story of stolen valor. We start in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 1, where the Bible says, And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables, and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king, which made a marriage for his son." and sent forth His servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Now, what's being spoken of here is the work of the gospel, the work of the effect of the Word of God, the work of God's work in a person's life. The marriage being spoken of represents the union of humanity and divinity. And in this passage, this parable, you see that a loving God is inviting lost people to be saved. I want you to think about that. This is a representation of God inviting lost people to be saved. Let's pause and think about this. God who called out the stars by number. Did you know science reveals, and this is unquestionably true, there are billions of galaxies in the universe. Ours, the Milky Way, is 100,000 light years across. That means that of Adam on the day he was created started traveling at the speed of light, and he started on one edge of the Milky Way galaxy, by now, 6,000 years later, he would be barely 5% of the way across our galaxy. That's how vast it is. And there are billions of galaxies. The Bible says that God, rather, that the heaven of heavens cannot contain God. That's how vast He is. So God... The Creator, the one who gives life, the one who makes the sun rise and the sun set, the one who calls the rain to fall on the just and on the unjust. God issues an invitation. To whom? To scoundrels, to the very people that nailed Jesus to an old rugged cross. This is the Holy God calling to unholy people. This is a privilege. It's a great honor And yet the people in the story are disrespectful of the honor being shown them. They should have fronted simply because it was the king extending the invitation. But the king was not done. You know, somebody said no to God, God was not done. You said no to God, God was not done. I just heard from one of my colleagues today about a couple who have given their lives to Jesus 40 years ago. They walked away from God and walked out of the church. God has been working with them for four decades, 40 long years, appealing to them and pleading with them until the day came that their neighbor, who was not a church member, said, I'm going to go to some meetings down at the local church. Would you like to come? And they said, sure, we'll attend. And what do you know? God led them home. Aren't you glad that God doesn't give up? Aren't you glad that God doesn't quit? Here, God didn't quit. Again, He sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden or invited. Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the marriage. It's just waiting for you. Come on. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm and another to his to his merchandise. He could have hit the pause button. The farm, the merchandise, they were going nowhere. But people prioritized work over God, commerce over God. Would you think for a moment about what you are putting in front of God? It might be work. It might be business. It might be school. It might be another individual. It might be social media. What are you putting in front of God? Hopefully nothing. But if there is something, anything, that you are prioritizing before God, placing over and above God, my prayer, my encouragement, is that you would do a moral inventory and ask God to set your priorities in order. God, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and everything else way on down the list. Well, the Bible goes on in Matthew 22 and verse 6. It says, The remnant took his servants... "...and entreated them spitefully and slew them." Well, you know what's on the mind of Jesus here. Jesus is referencing the rejection of the gospel. It was going on at that very time. The Savior of the world was in their midst, and they were looking at ways of getting rid of Him. Jesus was speaking to the time when Israel would rebuff Him. Prophets would be killed. Stephen and James would be put to death. The persecution of the early church was going to take place. That's what Christ is talking about in the early part of Matthew chapter 22, verse 7. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth. He was furious, angry. He sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Now, this point is too clear to miss. This is Jesus warning the people that Jerusalem would be destroyed about 40 years into the future in the year 70 AD. You reject God? How do I make this sound? How do I make this sound kind and not like a threat? You reject God, you ultimately reap what you sow. I don't mean that God will come after you like an angry tyrant. I don't mean that. But if you say, I don't want to follow God, God will ultimately honor your decision. And you cannot be saved, but you will be lost. I mean, lost, saved. What, what means more to you right now? Jesus, the devil, who means more to you right now? Your life or God's will for your life, His perfect plan for your life? Which is worth more to you? Verse 8, Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden or invited were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as you shall find, invite to the marriage. The gospel would go to the Gentiles. Yes, also those Jews who would believe on Jesus could be saved as well. But Christ is saying, I've been rejected by a bunch of people, so take the gospel to whoever will hear. And by the way, friend, here Jesus isn't just commissioning the disciples, then he's commissioning us today to take the gospel to others. And you don't need to make the mistake of thinking that only those who like they're interested, or look like they're interested, or appear as though they would fit in well in your congregation, are the only ones who will respond. Sometimes it is the least likely who will accept the invitation. So, those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all, as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. Can we pause and think about this idea of both bad and good? My thinking is that if you looked around your congregation, you would see a whole lot of people who look like they belong in church. Except the Bible tells us that the gospel is a net, you know, in the parable of the net, Jesus spelled out this very thing, that brings both good and bad, and the net good fish and bad fish, into the church. The fact of the matter is there ought to be some bad people in church. Now, I hope it's not you or the deacons or the local church elders, but if we are doing our job as God's people, we are going to find some of the people who don't fit the typical profile of church attender and we're going to bring them to church. The ones who look out of place, they ought to be in church. The ones who look like they intentionally did not dress for church, they ought to be in church. It's when we're not doing our job that there's nobody in church who looks like they don't belong in church. Let's bring them. And when we do, something special can happen. Now, I know a fellow, he would go to church each week and he'd sit there in the church service. Couldn't take it any longer. He'd get up and he'd go to the bathrooms, line up some cocaine and snort a line of cocaine up his nose. Then he'd go back into the church. He'd sit down. Quite impressed that the sermon had suddenly improved exponentially. He'd enjoy the rest of the church service and go on his way. This happened week after week after week after week. Now, I don't believe the preacher knew what was going on. I don't know how many people in the congregation knew what was going on, but the man knew what was going on. His wife knew what was going on. It turned out, though, that he was in exactly the right place. One day he goes to the bathroom, he lines up his line of cocaine, and something speaks to his heart. He says, why am I doing this? He pushes it into the sink, runs it down the drain, makes sure he washes everything off, goes back to church. The sermon hadn't improved, but he had, and he never used it again. Come on now, never used it again. If that brother hadn't been in church that morning, likely he would not have had that experience. Bring the sinners. Oh, I'm not promoting the idea of bringing drugs to church. But if God can get hold of a sinner in the church and change her life, change his life, that's a great thing. The passage says, the parable told us, bad and good, bring him. You bring the bad to Jesus, and Jesus can straighten them out, clean them up, and make them new. Now of course, there's a little tension that runs through this thing. We want unconverted people in the church. Ah, yes, we do. But of course, we want the unconverted to grow. The unconverted people should be the ones visiting the church, learning the truth of the Bible, taking baby steps. But when they come to Jesus and they plug into Jesus, after a certain period of time, you want to see people growing and experiencing transformation. Keep in mind that happens rapidly with some, less rapidly with others. So we're going to have the bad in the church and we're going to have the good in the church if we're doing our job right, understanding there's none that do good, no, not one, but these are generalities here, these words. A problem we have, though, is that there are people in the church who waffle around with being bad not determined that they'll ever change. If you're a Christian, and you're reaching out to God with any sincerity at all, there absolutely has to be a determination that Jesus will grow you. But we stagnate, many of us. We grow to a certain height, we level off, and you know there's no treading water you're either growing as a believer, or you are atrophying as a believer. I heard a story that might help us with this idea of growth. A man was on a safari in Africa. At night, they'd pitch a camp. They'd build a fire, sit around the campfire, off they'd go to bed, next day they'd carry on and go to another place on safari. But this man noticed, our friend noticed, they'd light a fire. First they'd set the fire up, little wood on the bottom, big wood on the top, they'd light the fire and uh, off they'd go. In the morning, he'd get out of his tent, he'd wander around and notice, just out a ways in a clearing, these fires had been set up. Little wood on the bottom, big wood on the top, but they had not been set alight. He wondered about that. He saw it day after day. And then he said to the guide on the safari, hey, watch this, we light a fire at night, And then in the morning, I see fire set about in the clearing. Little wood on the bottom, big wood on the top, except, of course, they've not been burned. What's that all about? The guide said, glad you noticed. Come with me. They walked a little way. He pointed up in a tree, and he said, what do you see up in that tree? The man responded truthfully, I see monkeys in that tree. He said, yes, and those monkeys have got very strong powers of observation. They watch us. They watch us build our fires, little wood on the bottom, big wood on the top. And at night when we go to bed, they'll come down out of the trees and set up a fire, little wood on the bottom, big wood on the top, just like they've watched us do again and again. He says they're great imitators, these guys. They build the fire perfectly. He said they've got everything Except the fire. Oh, I wonder if that can be said of the church today. We have our organs and our pews and our pianos and our stained glass and our praise teams and our community programs and our Bible study classes. It might be that there are times we've got everything but the fire. God speaks that in the last days there will be people with a form of godliness without the power thereof. That's not unbelievers. They don't have a form of godliness. We must have, and we may have, the power of the Holy Spirit. That fire will give you grace to put away the sin that besets you. You're not doing that without the fire. You're battling those old sins and you're not seeing spiritual growth. What you need is the fire. Sin looks attractive to you. Why? Because you don't have the fire. You need a new mind. God will give you a new mind. That's the power of the Holy Spirit, the fire of the Holy Spirit burning in your life. And let me say this. When it comes to sin, I hope you're hearing me, we don't do anyone any favors at all when we tell them that you can get over sin without putting up a fight. If you've ever had somebody say that to you, just invite Jesus into your heart and everything will be okay. Forgive them, because they lied to you. Rock musician Alice Cooper, and I cannot believe I'm about to quote Alice Cooper, rock musician Alice Cooper became a Christian some years ago. His father was a pastor and his grandfather, but Cooper said that he got as far away from the church as possible. He said this, listen, he said, drinking beer is easy. Trashing your hotel room is easy. I've never done it, but But being a Christian, he said, that's a tough call. That's rebellion. Oh, it is. You're rebelling against a society that encourages sin. That's where we are today. Society promotes sin, urges people to live lives outside the will of God. Sin is made to look as attractive as possible. And then being a Christian means that you are rebelling against yourself. You're rebelling against the desires of the unconverted heart. You know, people have got a lifetime of practicing sin. And if you come to Jesus, you are now swimming against the current of your life. You've got to fight sometimes. The Bible talks about putting to death the old person. Crucifying the flesh with the affections and the lusts. Paul wrote to the Galatians about that. Crucifying the flesh. Nothing easy about that. James wrote, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You know from experience that you have to fight against temptation sometimes. You know it's true. Listen, one of the reasons people get discouraged with faith in God is because they have been mistakenly led to believe that once they become a Christian, problems disappear and everything is easy. That sin will no longer be attractive. Oh, come on. Of course it's attractive. Now, it doesn't have to overpower you. And not everything will attract you. But there may well be some sins that you have to keep that will keep needling you for as long as you live. Some sins that you got to keep fending off and fighting off and ducking and weaving. What did James write? Resist the devil. All right. And? And he will flee from you. Now, before you jump out of your skin and say that Bradshaw is telling you to fight your way to heaven, righteousness by works, you ought to know me better than that by now you got to learn something about how to resist. You resist temptation in the strength of Jesus. What does Philippians 1 and verse 6 say? It says that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. You invite Christ to do the work, and he does the work. You consent. You surrender. Philippians 2 and verse 13 says, It is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. When you resist sin in the strength of Jesus, you are imbued with the most mighty power in the universe. You are filled with the invincible Spirit of God and the Holy Spirit, that fire, will work in your life to put temptation down. Well, you make it sound so simple. It is, it is. Theoretically, it's simple. In practice, it's a battle and a march. I don't mean to say it's onerous. I don't mean to say it's something that you will not enjoy. I do not mean to suggest that you will be defeated. You won't because Christ doesn't get defeated. Take your eyes off Jesus like Peter. You'll sink into the water. That's what happens. Christianity is about learning to keep your focus more acutely attuned to Jesus with every passing day. That's growing in faith. I read a statement once that said that Christians will often have to wage hard, stern battles with self. That statement said conflict after conflict must be waged against hereditary tendencies. We shall have to criticize ourselves closely. Of course, your dad was irascible. Then you may well inherit that tendency to to get your dander up with barely any provoking at all. You've got to fight that. You've got to criticize yourself. You need to look at yourself and say, Why am I like I am? Maybe I'm just a little too precious. Maybe I'm just a little too proud. Maybe I'm just a little too easily provoked. Well, now that you know that, thank God, and take it to Jesus and say, This is what I'm seeing, and I'm asking you to work with that. Don't think your battle with sin is a simple matter. Oh, oh it is in theory. Jesus died for your sins. Yes, you have an advocate with the Father. Amen and praise the Lord. All of that is true. But you've still got to surrender your sinful heart to Jesus. And by the way, you'll have to do it again and again and again and again. Anyone who tells you you don't is lying to you. They're not helping you. So wage those hard, stern battles with off-color content online. Wage a a hard, stern battle with your tendency to bite off other people's heads. Wage a hard, stern battle with your pride. Wage that battle in the Spirit of Jesus, relying on Jesus, but surrendering to Jesus so that His will is done in your experience, so that He is seen, and so that the unconverted you is not. Well, where are we in the parable? Back to Matthew 22, verse 11. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. Now, not only did the king invite a whole bunch of people, that was very gracious, the king inviting people to a wedding. We have a wedding in the Bradshaw family coming up very soon. First one for Melissa and I. No, no, wait. We've been married. One and done for us. But Now we have a child getting married. You send out a whole lot of invitations. You know, you send out the invitations. They probably can't come. They live so far away. He'd be busy. uh, Travel is difficult. She hasn't been well. You know, that sort of thing. But for the king to extend invitations and people not to, that's an insult. And the king in the story did something that we have no intention of doing. Provided a wedding garment for everybody to wear. You come on. But you've got to put this on in order to come in. So so if, let's say, if that wedding feast represents everlasting life, and I'm, I'm sure we could say that. We could say that. We will say it f- for the purpose. Then this parable is saying that there's something you've got to have to get into the feast. It's a wedding garment. That wedding garment represents the character that everyone who wants to go to the wedding has to have in order to get into the wedding. Character. Now, you might say, as long as I have my theology right, I can go to heaven. Well, as important as theology is, theology was not the prerequisite to get into this wedding. Well, it's important we do good deeds, right? Oh, yes, it is. But as important as good deeds are, it wasn't good deeds. that was a measuring stick for this wedding. Now, good deeds should spring out of a right character. It was character they needed. That is, Jesus in your life, molding and shaping your life so that it becomes indistinguishable from His life. It's the righteousness of Jesus which you receive freely through faith in Him. In Revelation chapter 18 and verse 1, the world is illuminated with a manifestation of the character of Jesus in the lives of his people. Now listen, we could have today spoken about the 2,300 days of Daniel chapter eight fourteen. I mean, that goes deep. That goes deep. You've got to interpret this and get this prophetic symbol here and you've got to stretch out a timeline. We could talk about that. We could talk about some of the great prophecies in the book of Revelation. All of that is good to talk about. I want to suggest something to you. That's the easy part of Christianity. That's the easy part of Christianity. What I'm talking to you about right now, that's a challenge. You can't fake this. You can't hide behind religion. This speaks to who you are at your core to who you are when it's just you, to who you are when the lights are out. This speaks to the work that you choose to allow Jesus to do deep in your heart. I wonder if people like me are guilty of not speaking about this enough. Oh, we preachers, we find a thousand and one things to talk about, but this is the most important thing to talk about. Okay, there's a hundred most important things. But this is one of the most important things to talk about. We must reflect the character of Jesus if we are to inherit everlasting life. That means you ought to be watching yourself. You don't need to be neurotic about it, but you do need to be a Christian. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way of everlasting. Are you praying that? Lord, what is there that shouldn't be there that you need to take out? Back to the parable, he said to them, or he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Of course he was. Like so many people today, profession is not possession. You can profess Jesus without having Jesus. I don't know if you know this—I hope you've been told this—we're in a crisis today. The church is in an absolute crisis. I'll unpack that a little bit simply by reading some verses found in the last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 3. Let's look together. Revelation 3, and we will start in verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write these things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. So evidently, there's a spiritual place, a spiritual state of being that's worse than being cold. Now, we would surely interpret cold as being all the way, meaning all the way against Jesus. There's something worse than being in rebellion. And that's being lukewarm. So Laodicea, the last day church, is described as being lukewarm. Now, you might have heard this wonderful story that if you go to Laodicea, you see up there Herapolis, and you can see the the mineral deposits because uh, hot water, thermal water, flows out of the ground up there, leaves mineral deposits behind. You can see it from miles away, and that's hot water, and that back in the day, they piped that water, and it ran down from Herapolis all the way down to Laodicea. By the time it got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. It's a great story. I might even have told that story myself problem is it's not a true story, and we'd like to get our stories correct. Yes, up in Herapolis, even today, hot water bubbles out of the ground. But back in that day, there was a lake between Herapolis and Laodicea. They didn't, they didn't pump water downhill or run water downhill to Laodicea. No. Herapolis' hot water just to the east of Laodicea is Colossae. Paul wrote to the Colossians, right next to Laodicea. In fact, you see Colossae and Laodicea mentioned in the Pauline epistles together. Now, the water in Colossae, even though Colossae is not much further from Herapolis than Laodicea, was not hot water. It wasn't thermal water bubbling out of the ground. They got their water from snowmelt, came down from the very high mountains nearby. There are mountains around there 7,000 plus feet tall. And the water that came down to Colossae was icy cold. And God is saying, you're not like Herapolis, hot. You're not like Colossae, cold. You're in between, lukewarm. So let's pick this up. God says, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. And vomiting, as you know, is not a voluntary action. It's an involuntary action. It's not that God wanted to, it's that he had to. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy, or rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So, I mean, what an indictment on the church. This is God speaking to the church in the last days. And he said, you think you're good, and you don't know your true spiritual condition. If I was a judgmental man, and of course I'm not, if I wanted to stick my neck out, oof, I could... We could talk about the church today, full of religious people sleepwalking straight to hell because they make a profession, but they haven't surrendered their hearts to Jesus, haven't prayed that prayer. No different to people in the world. You'd never know, except they front up to church each weekend, most weekends, some weekends. No, that's not Christianity, because when Christianity gets in here, it's, it's, it's like electricity running through you. It's going to have an effect, except a good effect. Rich and increased with goods have need of nothing. That's what, that's what people in God's church are saying down at the end of time. But you know Jesus wouldn't just tell you how, how bad the situation was without offering a solution. And he says, I counsel you to buy from me Gold tried in the fire. I heard somebody say that that is faith that works by love. That you may be rich. And white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. God said to the church at Laodicea, a place where black cloth was manufactured back in that day I want you to have white clothing that white clothing is the righteousness of Christ you can't buy it but you can have it you can't earn it but you can have it you can't bargain for it but you can receive it just by surrendering just by asking and then believing God take my heart please give me the righteousness of Jesus thank you I believe you've given it to me and you're praying that prayer genuinely now genuinely it's interesting too that he said, anoint your eye with eye salve. There was a medical school in Laodicea, and ophthalmologists there had created an eye salve. Oh, and by the way, these people who call it salve, it's from a Latin word, salvere, salvere. There's an L in there, salve. It's related to the word salvo, which is pronounced salvo. But I don't want to get off track here anoint your eyes with eye salve, however you pronounce it, so you can see. A- and what happens next? That I salve, that's the fire. That's the Holy Spirit. Faith that works by love and the righteousness of Christ. Buy it from me. How? For free. You just, you just claim it. Jesus said, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Then he talks about standing at the door of your heart and knocking. And he says, if you let him in, he will come in and dine with you. He promises to allow you to sit with him in his father's throne. Same situation played out in Zechariah chapter three, where the angel of the Lord takes away Zechariah's filthy garments and clothes him with pure, clean garments, representative of the righteousness of Christ. See, you're a a sinner, and I know you are, because we're all sinners. And it may be you're one of these sinners who looks at your life and says, I'm a hopeless case, or I've gone too far, or can God forgive somebody like me? And this is God saying, yes, absolutely. You might even be somebody who says, look, in all honesty, for years I've been a hypocrite, you know, there's a little hypocrite lurking not too far beneath the surface of everyone. God will have you back. he treat you like you never sinned. He'll give you the righteousness of Jesus. And you can have that. Matthew 22, verse 13, Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, this is the one without the wedding garment, and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For well, many are called, but few are chosen. You've been called, but are you chosen? This is an interesting one. You know, when we were kids in the playground and we were picking teams to play whatever against each other, there's always one or two kids who got picked at the at the end. They were waiting to be chosen. But you don't have to wait for God To choose you. What do you think Calvary was? That was Calvary saying, I choose you. This was God saying, You chosen, died for you. You can't be more chosen than that. You've been invited. Everybody invited to the wedding feast. But here's the question Did you fill out that RSVP and get it back to God? Are you willing to wear the wedding garment? That's just willing. God's not asking you to do or be or achieve. He's saying, are you willing? Just a handful of years ago, a stone sign was found near a church in the town of Great Snoring. I didn't make that up. Near another town called Fakenham. didn't make that up either. It's in Norfolk in the United Kingdom in, in England. That sign that they found was directing people to the town of Wells, seven miles away. That sign had been buried more than 70 years earlier. See, the British were fearing a Nazi invasion, and so they buried or hid many road signs because they didn't want the enemy to invade and say, oh, well, seven miles that way. They didn't want them knowing where they were or where they were going. Take away the signs and people can't know exactly where they are. You know, the devil wants to keep people ignorant of the signs. Jesus saying in Matthew 24 33, when you see all these things, all these signs, know that it is near at the doors. The signs Jesus gave should give both you and me a sense of urgency. There's an urgency about this world, there's an urgency about your salvation. Character. It's not enough just to believe that Jesus wasn't an imposter. It's not enough just to believe that the religion of the Bible is not a cunningly devised fable. You have the privilege of believing that Jesus' name is the only name under heaven among men whereby we might be saved. Yet you can believe that and still not have faith to make Him your personal Savior. Theory didn't save anybody. It's not enough to believe the theory Look, it's a privilege to know Jesus in a way that will alter your life and result in Jesus' life being lived in you. Before Jesus returns, the character of everybody on earth will have been determined. That wedding garment represents the character which the followers of Jesus, the true followers of Jesus, will have. Paul wrote of the church that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That's Ephesians 5.27. And that fine linen, as the scripture says, is the righteousness of saints. It's the righteousness of Jesus, His character, so that through faith in Jesus, that character is given to you as you've claimed Jesus as your personal Savior. There's only one thing that can make you fit to appear in God's presence. All these other things are important. Theology is important. All of that's important. But the only thing that could fit a person to stand in God's presence is the the robe of Christ's own righteousness. Remember what he says? I counsel you to buy of me white raiment that you may be clothed and that the shame of your nakedness does not appear. So how do you get the character of Jesus? I've read this in a book, a good book. I enjoyed it very much. The book is called Christ's Object Lessons. Listen to this. I couldn't put it better. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged in his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garment of his righteousness. Then as the Lord looks upon us, he sees not the fig leaf garment, nor the nakedness and deformity of sin, but his own robe of righteousness, which is perfect obedience to the law of Jehovah. When we submit ourselves to him, what? Heart is united in his heart. Will is merged in his will. Mind becomes one with his mind. Thoughts are brought into captivity to him. What are you waiting for? Can you submit to Jesus? That's the key. You do. He'll give you his righteousness. And you'll have his character. You'll have on the wedding garment. Complete preparation for that wonderful wedding feast. I want to pray with you now. Pray with me, our Father and our God. We thank you that though we are incomplete, we are complete in him, in your son Jesus. We thank you that though we are unrighteous, we may receive his righteousness fully and freely. We thank you that though we are weak, we may be strong. Though we are undeserving, we still may inherit everlasting life. We thank you for it. Friend, would you thank Jesus for it? I wonder if right now you would want to receive that wedding garment. If so, would you raise your hand? You lift up your hand. God, give me the character of Jesus. Give me the righteousness of Christ. This is our prayer. We believe you've done so. We thank you for it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Come on and say with me now, Amen. Thanks so much for joining me. God bless you. See you next time.